Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter five. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, welcome tonight to our discussion of Romans chapter 5. Tonight's theme is hope, and the title is Hope Against All Hope. We see that tonight in Romans 5. The Catechism tells us it is 1819 that Christian hope takes up and fulfills the hope of the chosen people, which has its origin and model in the hope of Abraham, who was blessed abundantly by the promises of God fulfilled in Isaac, and who was purified by the test of sacrifice, hoping against hope hope, he believed and thus became the father of many nations. We saw that in Romans chapter four, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your descendants be. Hope against all hope. Now, 11 months ago, my husband, Steve, lost his wedding ring. He makes the most incredible stuffing at Thanksgiving time, and he had made his famous Steve stuffing and stuffed the bird and he had it all done and he pulled his hand out and realized his ring was gone. So in hope against all hope, Steve started searching for that wedding ring and I searched. We went through all the garbage two, three, four times. That ring was a special ring. I had given it to Steve and it was the Song of Solomon 6 verse 3, I am to my beloved and my beloved is mine. (laughs) Were we still married without the ring? Yes, because the ring is not our covenant with God, but the ring is a visible sign of our fidelity, our covenant with God. Could I buy Steve another ring? Sure. But I didn't want to. I wanted that ring and he wanted that ring. 11 months. We had pretty much given up all hope that we would ever find that ring again. Hope against hope. 11 months. But just last week, I was changing a diaper of a grandchild and I was grabbing, it was a poopy diaper, and I was grabbing a plastic bag from the bottom drawer, which is usually full of bags, but I've been using paper bags lately. We were down to three bags in the bottom of the drawer and I spotted something. I spotted something and it was the ring, the wedding ring that had been missing for 11 months. I spotted Steve's ring. I was so excited. My heart soared. I found his ring this past Friday. It was hope against all hope. He had the ring on his finger. He cried. He wept when I gave it to him. He was so excited. I was so excited. We had almost lost hope. This was hope against all hope. 11 months later, we found Steve's wedding ring. Today in Romans chapter 5, St. Paul speaks of hope. He speaks of hope as a result of justification. You know Paul has given us a lot of bad news right off the bat. Well, tonight, folks, it's time for some good news. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. We know that suffering produces endurance and endurance 
produces character and character produces hope and hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. (laughs) That's a great hope. That's good news from St. Paul. Catechism 1820. But through the merits of Jesus Christ and his passion, God keeps us in the hope that does not disappoint. Hope is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that enters where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So like Abraham, we can all have hope against hope. We can therefore hope in the glory of heaven promised by God to those who love him and do his will. And in every circumstance, each one of us should hope with the grace of God to persevere to the end and to obtain the joy of heaven as God's eternal reward for the good works accomplished with the grace of Christ. Catechism 1821 says, In hope the church prays for all men to be saved. The church hopes for all men and all women to be saved. Hope against all hope. She longs to be united with Christ, the bridegroom in the glory of heaven. Now, you remember to understand Paul, I told you, we have to know what circumcision and the law meant to first century Jews. And so we've reviewed that in Romans 3. We went all through circumcision. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God had made a blood covenant with Abram and the blood covenant was dependent on God alone. And many years later, God gave Abram a sign and that sign would remind Abram that that blood covenant with God would not depend on sinful Abraham, but would solely depend on the faithfulness of God. It was circumcision that would be the sign, the sign, an outward sign, an outward reminder of the covenant with God. But it was not the circumcision that saved Abram or his descendants. And God said, know for certainty that your descendants are going to be oppressed for 400 years and for 430 long years the Jews were enslaved in bondage in Egypt and 430 years passed and the cry of Abram's descendants was heard by God and God raised up a deliverer from among Abram's own descendants. Moshe was drawn drawn from the water. He delivers Abraham's children out of bondage of Egypt. God is taking them unto himself out of Egypt. And God says, you saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you unto myself. Now that is love language for God. God wants to marry Israel. God, the father is going to be the first bridegroom of Israel. God instructed Moses to wash his bride for three days, free of blemish at the base of Mount Sinai. And on the third day, God, the bridegroom, would make an appearance. Good things happen on the third day in the scriptures. The Lord God gave the law to Moses as a wedding gift for his bride Israel. And God's love letter was written with God's own very finger on two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments for the bride's beatitude, her happiness. And then in Romans 4, we reviewed in entirety the law. Again, a blood covenant was made. Moses splatters blood on the people. There was a mutual consent with the people and God. The people said, all the Lord has spoken through Moses, we will do and we will obey. And Moses is called up to the top of Sinai with Aaron and Nabdab and Abihu and 70 elders. And there they saw face to face the God of Israel. And they beheld God and they ate and drank with God, kind of a wedding feast, a covenantal wedding meal shared between the two parties. And then Moses is 
called up alone into the Lord's devouring fire on the top of Sinai. And Moses goes up and he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Israelites grew very weary of waiting around. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And they advanced in worshiping a golden calf, Apis of Egypt, and to play and to party and to orgy. And God was not pleased his thunderous sound on the top of Sinai. And Moses interceded for God's sinful bride. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. They are a stiff-necked people. My wrath is burning hot against them. I might consume them. Let's just you and I go forward and make a great nation. And Moses said, no, 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 Lord. And he reminded God of his covenant with Abraham and how God had said the covenant was dependent on God alone and not on sinful Abram. And as the merciful husband of a wife in harlotry, God relents. And on behalf of Moses and his intercession and the reminder Moses gave him of the blood covenant, God relents. And the sons of Levi, Moses' brothers, are ordained in a Levitical priesthood by the killing of 3,000 Israelites who would not repent. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day 3,000 men. Now, juxtapose that, 3,000 killed by the old priesthood in the order of Levi by Moses versus 3,000 people born again by Pentecost of a new priestly order, the order of Jesus Christ in the order of Melchizedek, full of the Holy Spirit and Israelites. 3,000 were the first to be baptized Christians. You are not saved by circumcision. You are not justified by the law of Moses. You are justified by the blood of Jewish Jesus, who was a direct descendant of Abraham's lineage. Jesus will be the new bridegroom, and this wedding covenant will be for all the nation. Notice on this bride's wedding gown the flags of all the nations. It says in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1 that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And remember, Abraham was promised in Genesis 12 that by you, Abraham, all the families, all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves. Not just one of the families, not just some of the families, but all of the families of earth shall bless themselves by you, Abram. Jesus Christ, the new bridegroom in the lineage of Abraham, takes on a universal bride, a Catholic bride. The word Catholic is derived from the Latin Catholicus and from the Greek adjective Catholicos, meaning universal for all. Saint Ignatius is the first to pen the term Catholic in his letter to the Smyrnians in 110 years AD. Jesus Christ, the new bridegroom, had taken a universal bride. And Jesus, the son of Abraham, was the once for all blood expiation for all the nations. Now remember, Israel was God's bride, God the Father, but Jesus, God the Son, will be a new bridegroom universal for all. And I love that Catholicity of the, the, the universality of the Catholic Church. We see the vicar of Christ on earth, the successor of St. Peter, greeting a universal church, a universal bride, all the nations represented. Many greetings in many languages, this universal bride of Christ. Jesus was God in the second person, but most of them did not know that yet. God was revealing 
the Trinity. That's divine revelation. And Peter was the first, the first Pope and the first one to know when asked directly, Jesus said to the the disciples, who do you think I am? And Jesus, Simon Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus told him, oh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father in heaven did. So most Israelites didn't know yet. And this cross, this crucifixion on the cross was a real stumbling block for many Jews and Greeks as well. But they knew, they knew they were God the Father's chosen bride. Now there is no divorce with God. Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew 19, Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not So there is no divorce with God. He sticks to his word. He's truth. But when God died in the second person of the Trinity, Israel, God's original bride, was left a widow. When God died on the cross, God was released from his first marriage to Israel upon death. Israel was a widow, but only for three days. Why? Because good things happen on the third day. And on the third day, Jesus, God, rose from death. There is no death in God. In that three days, a new bride's sin had been fully washed clean. God had instructed Moses to wash God's bride free of blemish at the base of Sinai for three days. And on the third day, he would marry her. Now, Israel, the widow, could enter into a new covenant with God, the second person of the Trinity, on the third day. Now, some saints reason that the risen bridegroom Jesus first appeared to his mother, Mary. That's not in the scriptures, but Mary is a hinge pin. She's the daughter of Israel, the old bride of God, and she's the mother of the new bride of Jesus. Sibling, sibling, uh, that makes us siblings, all who believe. This was the opinion of St. Ignatius of Loyola. He had a vision of Jesus, risen Jesus, visiting Mary. This was the opinion of St. Therese of Avila. She had the same insight. Saint Anselm, however, was the first Catholic church doctor to teach that Jesus appeared to the Blessed Virgin Mary first. You see, salvation came from the Jews. The message of salvation was first for Israel, the Jews, but then for the entire world, all the Gentile nations, not only Israel, but all Abram's children by faith. Like he was told in Genesis 12, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. So when God died on the cross, a thick veil in the Holy of Holies was torn from the very top to the bottom. This is four inch thick fabric veil. You remember that the true presence of God, the ark, was not there. It was not in the Holy of Holies at the time of Jesus. It had gone missing. We know that from 2 Maccabees 2, that Jeremiah hid the ark of the Lord at the time of the Babylonian exile. The thick curtain of the Holy of Holies at the moment of crucifixion is torn from top to bottom. The torn veil symbolized the flesh of Jesus being torn open. Jesus was the contents of the ark, the true presence of God. He was the holy of holies and he was the final temple of God. We know that from Hebrews 10 as well. We have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his 
flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. The bride had once again been washed pure and clean. And anyone who believed that Jesus was God, that Jesus was Lord, could be part of this new covenant marriage. Tells us in Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of heifer sacrifice for purification of flesh, how much more, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus was the final temple and blood and water gushed from his torn flesh. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, Hebrews 9 verse 15. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred, which redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant, which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. It was not to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place yearly with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we enter into that at mass. We enter into that same once for all sacrifice, now unbloodied, but the same sacrifice, we participate in it. And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That, my friends, is the second coming of Christ, which we proclaim every Sunday in our Nicene Creed. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. He's already expiated our sin. Sin has already been dealt with. You are not justified by your circumcision. You are not justified by the law of Moses. One thing saves you. You are justified by the perfect sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. That precious, precious blood that God put forward Jesus as an expiation by his blood to be received in faith. Romans 3.25. Now the death of God in the second person of Jesus Christ was not the end of the story. Jesus rose from the dead on the eighth day. Also it's called on the third day, but it's also the eighth day. It's a new creation, a whole entirely new creation. And if anyone is in Christ, he himself is a new creation. On the eighth day, the circumcision of Isaac took place, the son of the old promise. On the eighth day, 
the resurrection of Jesus, the son of the new promise took place. Both are visible signs. Resurrection from death was a visible sign of the new blood covenant on the eighth day fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the new Isaac. Paul knows it's a visible sign and he knows resurrection is what we must know. He says, I delivered to you as a first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That's a very visible sign to more than 500 people. He appeared at one time. Two things had constrained humanity. Number one, sin. Number two, death. The crucifixion takes care of our sin. The precious blood sacrifice on the cross that atoned for our sin. And the resurrection freed us from the fear of death. Jesus, the new Adam, uncursed that cursed ground and ushered in the Father's right hand blessing over all humanity and a way back to partake in the divine life of the Trinity once again. Paul says to the Corinthians at 115, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? The resurrection erased it. Christ has fallen asleep from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul understands that Jesus Christ is a new Adam, the final Adam. And he tells us that in Romans 5 right now in verse 12. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. You don't know an infraction if there's not a rule about doing it. So death reigned from Adam to Moses before the law, yet even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Paul is the first one in the scriptures to use typology. He's comparing Adam and the new Adam, Jesus Christ. And he says the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift and the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the effect of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift allows many trespasses and brings justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reign through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Then as one man's trespass led to the condemnation for all men. So one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. That's Good news. That's good news for all of us sinners. This is the typology of Adam and Jesus. And the church has as early as apostolic times, like Paul, the apostle, and then constantly in her tradition, illuminated the unity of the divine plan in the two testaments through something called typology. This is Catechism 128. Typology discerns in God's works of the old covenant prefigurations of what he accomplished in the fullness of time in the person of his incarnate son. 
at 1.30 in the Catechism, typology indicates the dynamic involvement toward the fulfillment of the divine plan when God will be everything to everyone. The whole Bible is one book, one canon, and things in the old point to things in the new. And Paul knew that there was a unity in these two covenants. Disobedience brought sin to the world through Adam. Romans 5.19, and obedience would bring redemption to the world through the new Adam, the final Adam, Jesus Christ. First Adam was immortal, and he chose death. But the final Adam was made human. He was made, he submitted himself in great humbleness to become man, to become mortal. And then he chose to rise from death, as John 10.18 reminds us. Adam was the type, Jesus is the anti-type. The anti-type is always greater than the type. The law came in, to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ was the new and final Adam. What was lost through Adam was redeemed through Jesus. So St. Paul, my friends, was the first one to introduce typology to us. Now, Many wondered if there's a new Adam, was there a new Eve? Paul didn't address that in this letter, but many other early scholars thought the same question. Is there a new Eve? And yes, my friends, there is. St. Justin Martyr, as early as the second century, started writing, For Eve, who was a virgin and undefiled, having conceived the word of the serpent, brought forth disobedience and death. But Virgin Mary received faith and joy when the angel Gabriel announced the good tidings to her, that the spirit of the Lord would come upon her and by the power of the highest would overshadow her. Wherefore also the holy thing begotten of her is the son of man. And she replied, be it done unto me according to your word. Saint Irenaeus of Leon in the second century wrote more. It was not that the knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. For what the Virgin Eve had bound fast through unbelief, this did the Virgin Mary set free through faith. The knot of Eve's disobedience was loosed by the obedience of Mary. She is the untire of knots. This is one of Pope Francis's favorite images of Mary. Mary, Our Lady, the entire of knots. Tertullian wrote about it in the second and third century. I won't read all of it. St. Gregory, the wonder worker in this third century, made the connection of Mary, the new Eve. So did St. Jerome in the fourth century, writing, death came through Eve, life came through Mary. St. Ephraim, one of my favorites in the fourth century, has an eloquent sermon about this, that Mary is the new Eve, as did Augustine, St. Augustine in the fourth and fifth century. Our Lord was not adverse to males, for he took the form of a male, nor to females, for of a female he was born. Besides, there's a great mystery here, that just as death comes through a woman, life is born to us through a woman, that the devil defeated would be tormented by each nature, feminine and masculine, as he had taken delight in the defection of both. So we see a typology of Adam and Jesus and Eve and Mary. A parallel also could be found between Father Abraham and Mother Mary. For instance, in Romans 4, we read, In hope, Abram believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your descendants be. Well, Mary, as Abraham is Father Abraham, Mary is Mother Mary. And in hope, we could just change the name and pronoun and listen to it this way. In hope, Mary believed against hope that she should become the mother of the Messiah, the Son of God. 
both Father Abraham and Mother Mary were both promised a supernatural son of promise. It goes on, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, because he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Both of them, in fact, you'll remember, laughed. They laughed when God said they would have a son. That was part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter five, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.